every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello, and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Len Fisher, Senior Vice President of Demand Generation at Okta. Len leads the team responsible for creating and accelerating Okta's pipeline through campaign management, field marketing, partner marketing, and digital marketing efforts. Prior to Okta, Len was Executive Vice President of Marketing at BDNA and held key leadership roles in marketing and sales at Informatica. He holds an MBA from Pepperdine University. On this episode, Len shares how he and his team at Okta strive to be different, how his demand gen strategy changes over time, the person who he says can get him fired the quickest, and some of the most clever and interesting demand gen initiatives he's ever seen. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. And now, please enjoy this interview between Len Fisher, Senior Vice President of Demand Gen at Okta, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today we are joined by special guest, Len, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Truly the Buster Posey to my Tim Lincecum here today on the show. <laughs> um I'm excited to chat with you today. We're going to get deep into demand gen at Okta and your background. So first question, how do you get started in demand gen? I uh, got my wife pregnant. <laughs> I was working at a company called Informatica and I was running customer advocacy. And my wife was also at the company and she was running field marketing. And she went off to have our first child. And while she was out, they brought in a contractor, but I was able to take some of the, the team that she had and picked up the demand motion from there and then carry that for, for the rest of my career till now. So that's how it got started. So flash forward to today, tell us a little bit about your role uh, at Okta. So I run demand generation at Okta. I started four years ago and I had a, a worldwide scope and I had a small team, 12 people on my team. Fast forward today, I run demand for the Americas and for APAC, and I have hundreds of people on my team, and we focus on generating awareness, interest, and consideration. So I have the pleasure of working with marketers that are trying to drive programs to get people interested in Okta and educate them through the process, but I also have all of the follow-up motion, the business development and sales development representatives that follow up all the qualified leads and turn them into opportunities for the sales team. And do they report to you? Yes, they do. Great. We'll get into that here in a little bit. Let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What? I thought we were in the trust tree in the nest. Are we not? This is where you can go and feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. What would you say is your demand gen strategy? Creating successful demand. But I feel like the strategy is really to align to how the company wants to go to market. And so there's a, a big portion of that my demand strategy will change over time as the company evolves and changes. 
you have to be able to partner with not only sales, but the other functions within marketing in order to be effective. Think about demand over personalization, digitalization, and integration. And if those three themes carry through, you'll have a successful demand motion. So what does your org structure look like? I try to align to the funnel. So I've got a campaigns and acquisition team that think about top of the funnel. How can I get new people that weren't aware of Okta to be aware of Okta? And they're bringing those people in, whether we buy those people and help, you know, turn them into interested parties or, or we go out in the market and put great content in front of them so that they're interested in, in seeing what we have to offer. We also have a lifecycle team that looks at different buyers, customers, different journeys and putting those people through the journey, taking an engaged person to a qualified person. And then we have marketing programs that work from the qualified through. In our motion, once a, a person is qualified, we assign it to the SDR team. So we have that. And there are a lot of other programs that support us through this process. So we'll have a executive programs. We're going to be talking about what we call a customer experience center, CEC. Some people brand it as their EBC, executive briefing center. So we bring both customers and prospects through that in a high touch environment to help understand what their environment's like and better understand the challenges that they're facing and help map solutions that we might be able to offer them. We do strategic events, big events, virtual or in-person, depending on the year. But the idea is taking out and going where some of the our buyers and our personas that we want to go target and going out to them directly and showing them what we can have, what we have to offer. Taking a step back for Okta, for those of our listeners who don't know, what is Okta? Who are your target customers? Who are your target personas? Yeah, so Okta is a leading identity provider. Our vision is to accelerate a world where everyone can safely use any technology. And we bring simple and secure access to people and organizations everywhere. So we sell to every segment of the business. We sell to small companies. We sell to fast growing companies. We sell to what we call the world's largest organizations. And we promise those organizations that will protect their identities of their customers or their users. And we talk about like what else is possible? What can what else can we do to make to make their businesses and their missions more successful? You know, I think the thing that we have done over the past 10 years since the company's been in operation is continually push the envelope on innovation. It's, you know, one of the core values of the company. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily just mean product innovation. It also falls into our group and the demand group and how we can be more innovative in our demand motion so that we can provide more value back to the shareholders, to the customer, internal customers like the salespeople that we supply. And so what does that buying committee look like at a company who's trying to figure out, they're trying to maybe figure out some single sign-on, maybe they're trying to figure out some like workforce identity, maybe they're trying to figure out customer identity, they're looking at zero trust, like what does that buying committee look like? Because it seems like these are things that touch every single person in the organization now. Yeah, and it does. You know, at first, when we first started out, IT was the buyer and we had, whether it was security in IT or was it somebody with infrastructure, as we've gotten bigger and have we expanded our platform to cover other use cases like customer identity, we start to look on the business side. So maybe it's the chief marketing officer, maybe it's somebody in a sales particular role where they're looking to have a better customer experience. So from our point of view, as we've gotten bigger, the personas have gotten have expanded. And we're looking at 
creating a personalized approach to understand each of these personas, to understand kind of where, you know, what's driving them, how are they gold, what are the challenges that they have, and looking to see how we can fit in. Within a platform and enterprise sale, there are going to be a lot of people you're going to deal with. And it's not just one buyer. You're going to deal with all these different buyers and they're going to have different roles. Developers are a really good example. Developers today aren't the people that have the budget, but they're a heavy influencer in bringing on technology because they're the ones that are going to make it work for you. And, you know, developers has been known of a shortage, worldwide shortage of developers. And so anything that any company can do to make a developer more efficient and effective is going to be value for the company. Those are some additional personas that we've taken on over the past three or four years. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I mean, Okta is a customer of ours because we create the uh, CIO classified podcast in partnership and shout out to Lena, my gal Lena, who is amazing at Okta. And we, we work with you all on the CIO classified podcast. And it's so funny because we're talking to a lot of CIOs about this exact problem where there were times in the past where IT would either be sold around or you'd have shadow IT or the, you know these sort of things. And now you kind of have this new role of this new kind of CIO. Maybe they're not even called a CIO. Maybe they're called a CDO or a CTO or, or whatever it is that they're pushing the pace of innovation and they're pushing to get more business outcomes. They're pushing to be able to go to their business partners with answers, with data, with all that sort of stuff. How hard is it to be able to market to new demographics and give them the things that they need? Because what IT was 10 years ago is now you know completely different. Yeah, I, we see it as a dual process, right? We have to educate our IT buyer, but also the business buyer. And the reason for that is we're a SaaS company. We need successful implementations and successful deployments. And so it, it makes sense for us to go in and look and sometimes be the bridge between those two organizations. But in many successful organizations, they've already had that operated where they want those two groups to have a seat at the table and working with us to make sure that we understand what the right architecture and right deployment strategy is and understand all their challenges. So I feel like as companies evolve, the successful companies have that motion already where the business and IT could be two different groups, but they op they should be operating as one and they should be operating to solve and, you know, to kind of push the mission or vision of their company. And so for us, the selling motion needs to include both. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, you have obviously this workforce identity solution, which is all about really, you know, protecting your employees, your contractors, your partners, your people like that. It's about, you know, enhancing employee experience. And then you also have a customer identity solution where you're talking about dealing with customers. It's such a crazy time because those two things live on the on opposite sides of the company. They live on, on opposite sides of the balance sheet a lot of times. These are two things that are inherently two different buying motions, but now both sides are buying the same product. Is that kind of difficult to kind of get that committee-driven demand? Yes. And it might not mean landing both at the same time. It might be landing one and making one successful and then having them help us champion into the other part of the organization. You know, identity is pervasive across the entire organization and a platform would allow a customer or any organization to have a lot of advantages across that that wouldn't be available if they're going to have point solutions in different departments. I know our vision is to make, you know, identity a cloud that allows for companies to leverage all of those goodness and capabilities across 
you know, all of their needs and not necessarily thinking about it from a department to department perspective or from a project to project perspective. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that journey, the idea of this identity cloud? I know, you know, your CEO has talked about it recently. To me, it seems like I'm sure everybody in the industry knows about, you know, Okta's single sign-on. They, you know, I'm sure you have tons of landed motion in the company in that product for years and years and years, or people who are, you know, even people who are finding it now. But the demand gen challenge when you up level, when you try to say, hey, we're creating this new category, we're creating this new cloud. What kind of goes into that? There's a lot of things that happen outside of demand that gets us going. You know, I think it's said at the CEO, at the vision of what we think is possible. I think great content and something that we use in our demand motion that helps educate the people that we're trying to target. I think creating that overall awareness because we do have successful deployments in both of those, you know, what we call workforce or customer identity. But how do we work with those customers to tell those stories and that we can show those stories to new organizations or new prospects? It makes the demand motion a lot easier when you have the ingredients of great messaging, a great offering, great customers, and success. And you know, I feel like my team is blessed with that at Okta. You run into a lot of customers at different events or different sites, and it doesn't go without saying that every time I run into somebody, they say, we love Okta. If I have an Okta shirt on, I'm, I'm walking out, working out, or walking the dog and somebody sees that I have an Okta shirt on, I'm an Okta customer, I love Okta. But that's where you have to start from. You have to start from putting the customer's needs first, which is another one of our one of core competencies. And I feel like that helps us in the demand motion, but it does make it complicated when you have a lot of opportunity. It's about focus. Where do you focus? How do you make sure that you're putting the right a lot of effort around that? Yeah, I, I have my uh, my Okta shirt, the uh, I find your lack of security disturbing shirt that I always get a compliment whenever I wear it. If someone knows, they're like, oh, I, like, I have that shirt or I remember that or, or whatever. We have some very creative people within the company and we, we have a lot of those stories. So, Okay, let's get to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. Playbook is where you open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. So what are three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items? This one's a tough one because I, I would imagine if any tactic is working, I'm not cutting it. But I'll just say if I look forward and I say kind of where I think the future is coming from, you know, I think any digital portion or digital motion or digital investment is probably on the list of things that I wouldn't cut. We do a good job in our digital motion. You can always do better in everything, but I see that as something that has to be integrated in a digital motion. How do I make, how do I turn a digital motion to an in-person motion or have a simultaneous because people want choice. They might want not go to events ever again, or some people might want to, but you want to capture the people that can or don't. So it's probably one. The second one is, you know, technology stack. I have a pretty big department, but it would even be bigger if I didn't have core technology that would allow us to be scalable, to be much more efficient in our in our efforts. So I, I feel like if you're not investing in marketing technology as part of demand motion, or if you don't have a seat at that table, that's a mistake. And then the third one, which I hope I don't have to cut is events, right? Partly because I want to come back to an environment where events are cool again and that people are okay coming out because that just means, you know, the world got back to a little bit more sense of normal. So that one's a little selfish, but hopefully true events usually are a good thing for us 
One is you see a lot of great people within the company. And if I can put those great people in front of a prospector and customer to talk about what's going on in the market and what their challenges they're having, it typically translates into a really good conversation or a really happy prospect or a more interested prospect. So I feel like I have a really strong team around me at Okta. And the more I can put them in front of the right people, the better off I am. And we can do that in an event. I totally agree. So it's funny, you know, I say all the time that like marketing is is meant to be remarkable and which means you have to like talk about it with somebody else. And I always think about that with events where it's like, think of how hard it is. Like, I hope that you'll remember this podcast. I'm recording this forever and always, but think of how different this recording would be instead of being at Zoom when, you know, in and amongst your, your million other meetings, if we were to be doing it in person, if you had, you know, a beverage of choice of all that sort of stuff. And that's what like events give you a story, they give you a setting, they give you all of those things to remember what was happening. And like, you know, people might not say like, oh, yeah, I remember the sales conversation or whatever. But well, a the salesperson probably will remember that forever. But uh, it's betting on the sale. It is like it is an important thing. Like it helps people actually, you know, have an experience we're talking about. And it's just so much harder to build that remotely. 100%. The connection is is super hard. And I think my team did a really good job this past year in March when we decided we're not doing any more in-person events this year. Somebody on my team raised their hand and said, well, what about the five we have going on tomorrow? We canceled all of them, actually canceled three. We did two, we converted two into virtual events within like an eight hour period of time, which was amazing. But we stayed ahead of it, right? We We had to do things on, we knew the market, we knew people we're more worried about their families and loved ones getting sick and death and uh, uncertainty. So we tried to do things that had more levity and experiential things, cooking classes, barbecue classes, you know, crafts, things that got family together to do things because families were stuck together probably the first time in a long time where they were doing a lot of things together. And then we've broadened that over the period of time and tried to move it back to more educational. But we try to stay ahead of it because we want to be different. Uh, we feel like people deserve different. And it's one thing that I'll say, I was really, really proud of my team and what we did last year to receive the results that we did, but in the face of incredible headwinds. So it was, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, I was, I went to Octane. I forget how many sessions I, I think I sat on like three or four sessions, saw Lindsay, shout out to Lindsay Life. Who did she interview? Oh my goodness. Anyways, uh, famous actress. And it was, it was rad. That size of an event. I don't, if people don't plan events, I mean, that is a, it's literally a year long of planning process for many. And then, you know, as it gets closer, there's more people that kind of build up momentum, but to decide literally three and a half weeks before that, to switch it to a completely virtual event and for how it went off was spectacular. Cause if you go back in that time, people are canceling their conferences and there wasn't another option. It was like, we're just not doing it. And that made sense, but not Okta, right? Okta thought about it and said, listen, we have a need out there. People want want to have some sense of normalcy. They want to be able to, to do something that, and we felt it was the right time to come out. And I, I was you know, super proud to be a, an Okta employee and having seen what they went through. And Lindsay Life interview of Amy Poehler was pretty spectacular. Hi, one of the highlights of the conference for me. For sure. It was great. Also, just how pumped she was to be doing it was pretty awesome. Well, and so you have Octane 21 coming up. It's April 6th to the 8th here. So for our listeners, it's virtual and free. So go check it out. 
because if nothing else, you all run uh, an amazing digital event. I think a year ago, you were probably sitting there thinking, I sure hope Octane 21 is is in person. And and I'll say, you know, for next year, I sure hope Octane 22 is in person. But what do you think is the way that we can kind of, you know, go down this road where digital events have their place that are still important. They reach multiple demographics that you've never been able to reach before, different geographies, but still have in-person to drive a bunch of value. Yeah, that's a great question. And if I had a great answer, we might not be talking right now. (laughs) I think it's hard. A couple things. One is you don't know who wants to show up in person, who wants to do it virtually, which is one of the challenges, right, ultimately of of identifying how do you make that work. I do think there's an opportunity to have in-person content and in-person interactions, but still having a virtual component to it so that you get leverage. So it's not like running one or the other, but it's running both. And it's a matter of, I think, thinking through how you would deliver some of that content. So for instance, you could run a keynote and you could stream it and you could have the people in person and then allow for interaction you know, at lunch or, or other activities that would then transcend that you wouldn't have, that you would do available. There is ability to formulate that mix. But as a marketer, just like everything is, how do you know who wants to go and who doesn't want to go? And how do I make sure that I provide the right offer to the right person? But I do feel like that will be a trend where you will see be either all in person or all virtual, you'll see some type of hybrid and combination. And I think that that makes sense. You mentioned digital as your number one uncuttable budget item here. Any specific tactics within your digital activities that you've seen that have worked really well in the past year? Because so much has been digital in the past year. We have a great digital advertising team. And one of the things that we saw was obviously there's a lot of increase in people at home and people online but there's also a lot of decrease of of advertisers, right? Because there are some companies that were struggling with COVID and and had to look at what budget items they can cut. And I think we took an opportunity to do things there that allowed us to get our brand more in market. I think it depends on where you're at, though, in your journey. And Okta is a great brand, but we'd like to be more recognized, right? We would like more of the personas that we care about, more of the organizations that we care about to know what we are. And so for us... Digital advertising is a good motion and also some more resources and making it more personalized and having, I'll say, better content that can be pushed to the right people and the right organizations is important. So I feel like we've done a good job there. What is one budget item or channel or tactic or something that maybe wasn't working or maybe you see fading away or something that's not going to be in the mix going forward? The thing that I want to say hopefully is direct mail that's not personalized. Direct mail is one of the tactics that actually has picked up over the past several years for us, but mostly because it has to be personalized, right? It has to have a personalized approach to it. And, you know, back in the day, probably first starting out in marketing, a lot of direct mail, you know, massive dumps of hundreds of thousands of postcards around things that just didn't make sense and things that you probably get at home from from other vendors, B2C vendors that you're like, I don't know why they're spending money on this. I do think you know, things that aren't personalized are gonna go away because there's more and more technology that make that, and there's more higher expectations for people to say, you should be able to get this right. I think the balance is, how do you balance personalization with privacy? 
listen, if you wouldn't share any of your information, how do you expect somebody to personalize something to you? At what point do you, are you okay with sharing data so that you can have a more personalized experience versus not? For a marketer, I think that that's the hardest line to figure out. And that varies geography-wise, culture-wise. It's probably the thing that is holding us back the most is not necessarily knowing where that line is to be drawn. How do you view your website? I will call it the picture window into our company. So the cleanest room in any house is the house that sits at the front of the house where the big picture window where people are walking by. That room will never be messy in my house. And I'm sure that's like that in everybody else's house. But the website should show a little bit about what the company's about, right? It should show not only what the products you offer, what customers you have. It's, it is that window into the, into the company itself. And it's one of the things where you have a lot of reach in there. But again, we talk about personalization is you have to be able to understand who's coming to your website and what's the message you need to tell those people. I think too many times people have, they envision the website to cater to one particular audience, and that's not the audience that's coming to the website. And so that's a big mess. So if you don't know who's coming to your website and you realize that you're going to have different messages for different people, whether it's level or, or function, how do you end up having a, a personalized experience that's going to be relevant for them? You can't. So website is super important. You know, for most people, it will be their number one demand source. You know, a lot of times you're going to take other marketing demand components and push people to the websites. You're going to accelerate that, you know, advertising fronts, you know, digital advertising pushes people to the website. And if you can either count that as a website or count that as a a sold, a different channel, the web should be number one priority in demand. And in a lot of cases, and in my case, it doesn't sit in my team. So we have to be a really good partner with the people in that group and have to understand that demand is not their only charter, right? I mean, they're talking about, they have other audiences, right? They have analysts, both investor and industry analysts. They have communicate the brand. And there are a lot of, you know, customers that come to that site to get information, whether it's through the customer portal. So the web properties have to cater a lot of different audiences. And, you know, you have to stay front and center with, with what's important for me is demand and working with them and having them understand what you're trying to accomplish and how you want to work together. So it's an important relationship for me internally and always has been one of the top channels for demand. We talk conversational marketing on this show pretty much every episode because our amazing sponsor, Qualified.com, has the best conversational marketing tool out there. But I'm curious if you're messing around at all with conversational marketing. I know that you know you were talking about personalization a, a bunch and website is one of those places where personalization done right is so amazing. And you can talk to real people in, you know, in real time and all that. But websites where personalization done wrong could be a nightmare. We use a lot of technology in our web properties to either have communication vehicles so that people on the website can communicate directly with the right people around questions that they might have. We also have ability to personalize the website based upon information that we have, data that we have about who's coming to the site. And then we also can build custom microsites that allow us to push out content to the right people and to show what we can do for that organization or for those particular roles. So there's a lot of analytics that you can drive off of that because of the volume. So a lot of our technology investment is surrounding our web properties. And again, I think back to the one of the three things I wouldn't cut is the technology. And that is one of the reasons for that as well. Do you have a favorite campaign or demand gen initiative that you've done over the past few years? 
I'll give you two answers. The first one, my SDR team, there's a folklore of who it came from. So I'm not going to name the name because I, I don't think it's validated, but they decided to look up a high value target on LinkedIn, took the person's picture and sent it in and had a custom bobblehead built for that person based upon their profile. They like sports. So they got the bobblehead back with the sports thing and they hand wrote a letter and they sent it to them and it caught on. And so almost every SDR was creating it. The fact that we had to programmatize it for marketing to help with that, but the response rate was 40%. So 40% of the bobbleheads we set out, we would get a meeting from. Some people maybe felt like this was overboard. They felt it was a little creepy. A lot of people thought it was clever. And um, we closed a very, very large deal off of the start of a conversation with an executive at an account based upon the bobblehead. So the custom bobblehead is one of the things that we did. And you know, the SDR is a great avenue for these ideas because they get paid if they have meetings and they have opportunities. So regardless, if even if you have the best marketing, they're gonna wanna look at how can I make more money? How can I create more meetings? How can I create more stage twos? We've used Cameo recently and used that as a way to get in touch of, in front of different people. And again, takes a little research to figure out what would be appealing to them and a little creative on the message. And then hopefully that the celebrity or that person of interest in Cameo does a good job of the pitch. But I've seen some really, really cool ones on that. The second answer gets into a little bit around, we do things with our customers. And so we feel like one of the things that we can do to help our customers at help position, you know, what they're trying to do. I'll give you three customers we've done things with. So the first thing we did is Live Nation is a customer. And so we created a program with them so we can put in front of high value targets, executives across four different major cities. And we did a backstage with Okta. So it was a concert where we would bring executives, have a networking session, and they would bring their spouse, significant other in. And we had Gavin DeGraw play for them. And it was off of you know 50 people in each vet, very, very small, very, very intimate. And four great evenings and memorable relationships were developed from that. We're doing currently a Nike, customized Nike shoes. So we would work with a prospect and then ultimately they would get a a customized set of Nike shoes. If they end up taking a meeting with us, we have an opportunity to show who we are as the reach out process during the meeting and then also follow up. But Nike is a great customer of Octa's as well. And that's something we can pay back. And then Timbuktu makes great backpacks. And we put this through our partner channel where our partners use this program and content that we've provided. And if they can get a meeting set up with Okta, that that person can go to the Timbuktu website, customize the backpack of their choice, and therefore have that. So all three are great examples of how we want to try to give back to the customers because we understand that, you know, they have a mission that they're trying to solve as well. And if we can do this as, you know, a little, little bit of payback from us and all three of these programs have been very, very successful too. It's the benefit that we've gotten from that as well. Yeah, I love that. I mean, how much as a demand gen leader do you think, you know, you focus about the post-sale marketing, customer marketing, customer success? Because it seems like that might not have been a traditional demand gen function. Like, you know, maybe people aren't thinking about it, but maybe they should be more. Well, in SaaS, if you're not, then you're not going to be in business very long because customers have a choice every year to decide to renew or not renew. And so our motion historically has to go beyond that first sale. So there is a lot of customer programs that we do. And as well as a growing company, and we talked about you know the wide variety of solutions that we have, 
customers typically don't buy everything at, up front. And, you know, once they have something up and running, you can work with them or, or their peers within their organization to showcase how you can help them and the upselling and cross-selling then benefits. The other thing that I think for us that has been different over the past year is typically there's a handoff, that opportunity is a handoff between demand gen and sales. And a lot of times sales doesn't want marketing to help at that particular point. They want to help control the message that goes to the market. They want to focus on that. But we figure that we can help with what we call post-stage two or opportunities that are currently in flight. And we can help educate and bring other people into that discussion. And not only on what they're looking at, but also just be mindful that there are other things that they're not looking at. Not that we want to necessarily make them part of the deal. It's just more of an education process to make sure that they really understand what the full platform capabilities are, because that's a lot of a decision that people make. This technology is hopefully long lasting. And if there is an ability for them to expand their relationship with us, that's usually a good thing. So I feel that, you know, in SaaS, you have to think about, you know, customer cross-sell, upsell, adoption. So we do a lot of things around adoption, making sure that people are using what they had originally purchased and getting value from it. But those things probably are a lot different than when I first started in a perpetual world where you were on to the next customer or on the next prospect trying to have them become a customer. Let's get to our next segment, the Desta. Uh-oh, here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust-up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales team, your competitors, or anyone else. Len, have you had a memorable dust-up in your career? Yes, I have. You know, I I look at the the term dust-up and had to make sure that I quantify it correctly. but. One was, and it's and the reason that I am actually at Okta was the previous dust up. It really wasn't too much of a dust up, but I'll, I'll walk through it. Is I left one company, joined another company, and I gave a three or four week notice because I wanted to make sure I left on good terms with the other company. The time that I quit and I started, my boss, because it was I had a marketing job, the CEO and the CFO were let go. So the Friday before I was supposed to start, we had a new CEO and a new CFO starting on the same day. So it took about six weeks, but you know, we called the meeting on Monday night and it was right before Thanksgiving, actually. And he said, Len, I think you're the wrong guy for the job. And I said, I disagree with you, but that's okay. You know, it's your company. I need you, you need to be supportive on your mission. So I didn't do a lot of kicking up, but I'll just say the disagreement was whether I was the right person for the job or not. So every day I wake up and I thank him for saying that because the next job that I ended up landing was the job at Okta. And I use that story a lot with my SDRs because I talk, that's the first time ever that I was ever let go from a company. And it was a really demoralizing experience. But if you look at it, it brought an opportunity that I can't even fathom that was even capable before. And, you know, one disappointment and one, somebody else's opinion, you know, made that possible. I didn't agree with the opinion, but I also felt like I had to honor the opinion because that's how I am. It's his company and he wants to put the right team on the place to make it. But without that, I wouldn't have been at Okta and I wouldn't be talking here today. So there's been plenty of dust up with my current boss, Ryan Carlson, who you know. But most of those usually end up with a beer at a bar. And, you know, a lot of, I mean, I think Ryan and I have a different point of view and the same point of view. The point of view is that we both care about Okta a lot and we both care about our teams and we might have different ways of approaching it. And I feel like 
the dust-ups usually end up with, for me and him, usually end up with a drink and a conversation and, you know, let's move forward. With sales, it's a little bit harder because they're, they're my customer. And I feel like I want, you know, I want to lead them right. But there's been many times where I've done a program and I'm confident the program's not going to work. But I'm willing to show, to reach out the olive branch and do the program like I want it to work, not that I think it's going to fail, but to, to show them I'm willing to try it. But I tell them up front, I don't think this is going to work, but obviously I need it to work or I want it to work because I'm investing money and I need to show return. So when it's your customer that you have the dust up with, you have to be willing to kind of share why you feel the way that you feel. And you have to be willing to sometimes do something that you might not believe in. But as I always say, that you have to be able to leave the room or the Zoom and saying like, you're going to put your full effort in it. You're going to try to make it work. So I love working with sales. Sales, you know, they have the pressure of the quota, the revenue quota that nobody else can fathom. But also that the fact is that, you know, we think we know demand and we think we know how we can help them. And it's a matter of bridging, you know, what they need versus what we think that they need. And sometimes that's easy and sometimes that's hard. Yeah, it's like if you run all the campaigns that they want and none of the ones that you want, your sales customer is very happy with you and you're still going to get fired <laughs> if it doesn't work. So Lynn was the nicest guy ever, but boy, did that not work. Well, it's what I told Ryan when I first started, and I think he would agree with me, is that the person that can get me fired the quickest is the head of sales. So if the head of sales does not think I'm doing the job, regardless if Ryan thinks I'm doing the job, that's the quickest way for me to get fired. The second thing is I always say that not everything is can be fixed by a CIO golf event, right? <laughs> so that's what we usually have from sales is like this executive golf event, like that's going to solve all of our ills. But I've done plenty of them and not because I don't think they're going to work or they're going to work, but ultimately we've come to an agreement and saying like, that's what we think we should be doing. And, you know, not everything in marketing will work. That's the other thing that I've learned over the years is not everything will always work. And what doesn't work typically will teach you more lessons than what does does work. So as long as you're willing to think about what, why it didn't work and what kind of changes you would do next time, I think there's value in it, regardless of how much pipeline you get. Yeah, the golf events and the uh, the suite at the Warriors game or the basketball game. One of my favorite stories is the uh, the CFO who goes back to the sales leader and goes, hey, by the way, show me the list of people who got tickets to this over the past year. And we'll just, we'll just do some pipeline attribution here. Sometimes that conversation doesn't go great. The suites to the sporting events are tough. And again, I'm a big believer, like these experiential things really work, but I would rather do a few of them, but go to the big events, go to the final four, go to the masters. You go to some of these big events because at the end of the day, everybody has a suite and you're not any different. And we talked about being different. Like we want to be different. And so if everybody has... If everybody has access to a, a Laker game or a Warrior game or a Giants game, then what different is? If I, but if we're going to the World Series, sure, let's talk about it. I feel like that's something that you don't necessarily see unless sometimes you try it. So the fact is that you have that suite and all of a sudden you're not filling it with the right people or you're filling it with the people that you wouldn't have thought that would have, you know, that wasn't the level of person that you want to get for it based upon the investment that you put in. Let's get to our final segment. Quick hits. 
These are quick questions, quick answers, just like conversational marketing with qualified.com. Qualified prospects are on your website right now, and you can talk to them quickly with qualified.com. Quick and easy, just like these questions. Len, are you ready? I am ready. Number one, who's your favorite sports team? I have the 49er stuff sitting in front of me, and I have the Giants stuff sitting behind me. And I'd have to say that I mean, I would, I, I love the Giants as well. Buster Posey is my favorite Giant. But something about only 16 games a season and every game has a buildup to it, the way that the football schedule works out, I think works into my kind of schedule in favor. I think if I was retired, I'd probably be more of a baseball fan because I'd be able to go to a ton of games and I'd be able to get into it more. But that's why football games are typically on Sunday. Sunday, I'm typically not working. So it typically works out, but football's a football's a great sport. It's a great, it's actually a great marketing lesson hidden in there too. If you can do something amazing 16 times, it's a lot better than doing something, you know, not quite as good 150 times. That's right. 162 actually, but yeah, <laughs> I guess yeah. Your point. there is a great lesson in that. And um, now I know that the salespeople are going to come to me and looking for 49er Skybox or Buccaneers Skybox or and at New York Giants skybox. Yep. So I expect those calls. Yeah, training camp's a good one. Yeah. Because training camp, it's like, that's kind of fun. It's unique. Favorite Niner? Patrick Willis. Who? good one. 52. Also, because he went out on top. I think, you know, he retired probably before he maybe should have or could have, um, but he went out on top. I, I, I appreciate athletes that can leave the game when they're playing the highest. I think it takes a lot of discipline. Barry Sanders is another one that, I would put up there and probably could have played another 10 years. It's crazy. Yeah. Willis was great. What a great player. That Niner defense. Do you have a, a hobby that you've picked up during shelter in place or that you kept going this year? I like golf. I think I played more golf this past year than I probably played in any year. I'm not good, but I like to go and play. It was also probably one of the few things that you could do that was socially acceptable. Yep. So. I'd have to say golf would be something that I would do, but I've also done a lot of cooking as a hobby, barbecuing specifically at shelter in place. It's nice being able to have a half an hour break between meetings and marinate the meat uh, and get the grill ready. Um, and then not have to worry about the, you know, for me an hour commute home that I could get the grill going. And uh, we always ate, which I always ate as a family, but I'm able to eat as a family a little bit earlier than I normally do. Do you have a book or TV show or podcast that you've been binging recently? I'm watching Ray Donovan right now as a, as a show. So that's probably what's top of mind, something that my wife and I do when the kids are in bed. If you weren't in marketing, what do you think you'd be doing? My first job out of school was manufacturing. So I'd probably be somewhere in the uh, Asia Pacific region, hopefully a plant manager of some manufacturing facility. So that's probably what I'd be doing if I wasn't in marketing. What is your best advice for a first-time head of demand gen? Fight for your team because they'll fight for you. I think if you bring the right people in and a little bit of setting them up for success, because this is a very collaborative position and you have to work with a lot of different people. But ultimately, I think if you bring the right people in and you, you set them up properly, but if you fight for them with the rest of the organization and what, we're, what we can do and what we can't do, it typically will work into your favor. Well, Lynn, that's it. That's all we got for today. Thanks so much for, for hanging out with us. For our listeners, if you want to see how to run a great digital event, go check out Octane. And you can go to, I think, what is it, octane21.com? Or what is it? Yes. 
octane21.com. Yeah, go check it out. It's coming up in like a couple weeks here. So go check that out. Len, any final thoughts? Anything else to plug? Yeah, I wanted to give a shout out. So somebody in the Octa family, very close to me, their young daughter got diagnosed with leukemia recently on the mend, looking positive. But if you want to go to lls.org, leukemia and lymphoma society.org. And if you want to donate, donate $28 to my favorite player, Buster Posey. Kids should be a kid. They shouldn't be a patient. So anything that we can do to eradicate that awful disease would be great. So lls.org. That's awesome. I love that. I'll do that after this. And that's great advice. Thank you for joining. Thanks to Qualified for sponsoring. And thanks to uh, all the listeners out there. We appreciate you, uh, you listening. Thank you. ManGen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.